during my week, Father, I'm reminded as I talk to others and they relate their experiences in worship or in fellowship in one place or another, I'm reminded, Father, just how blessed we are. How many people, Father, yearn to have the kind of relationship with you and with one another that you have provided for us here at Oak Hill Bible Church. I pray, Father, that as we study today, this study, among all the others we have done and will do, will continue to develop and mature us into the man or woman you have called us to be. And then as a fellowship, Father, that you would use your word to equip us powerfully for the work of ministry in this part of the city. Let us hear things today and know things anew that would cause us to step out in courage and in faith, Father, to do your will. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we officially, if you were counting, officially ended our study of Noah. That took a little while, almost as long as the flood itself, but we did finish. This week we start a new toldat. In Hebrew that means the new genealogy or new record of the story of redemption. That's really what we're studying here in the book of Genesis. The story of how God redeems us from the fall as we see it play out over the course of many centuries. Today we start chapter 10. We'll finish 10 today, God willing. And I want you to know that as we do 10 today and 11 in the weeks to come, these chapters work together as a single piece. Remember I've said this before, Genesis has this tendency among its chapters to zoom in for a while and look at the detail of someone's life or the lives of certain people, relate that story to conclusion, and then zoom out, fly up to the 30,000 foot level as people say, and then skip across vast periods of time in a summary, only to zoom back in again later when we get to the next major piece of the story. Chapter 10 is the zoom out. We take a broad view of, of history for a moment. It specifically covers the beginning of all nations on earth. Chapter 11, which will follow, of course, 11 follows 10, that becomes the zoom-in moment. That's where we go back and look again at the same period of time that 10 covers, only we look at a small section of it, a very specific moment in the course of that time. So chapter 11 is actually earlier than chapter 10. Chronologically, Chapter 10 brings us past the moment of chapter 11. You'll see it all when we get there. Together, these two chapters tell the story of ancient man and ancient civilization, of how we got where we are now story. And what will follow in chapter 11 is a narrowing of a focus down to how men were scattered in language. So we leave the generations of Noah, and today we move into the generations of the next line, the generations of the sons of Noah. Look with me in chapter 10. Starting in verse 1. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And sons were born to them after the flood. Noah only has three sons, according to Scripture. Only three. So we can say confidently, based on Scripture, all human beings on earth today trace their origins to one of these three men. So the next time you sit in a sports stadium... And you look out across the vast number of people that are sitting there with you. Or perhaps you watch a crowd walking by in the mall. Uh, I want you to remember that one out of three people in that room are related. And ultimately we're all related going back to Noah. But one out of three came from the same grandfather. Great, 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 but nonetheless a grandfather. Now the names of the boys in this list here are in their order of age from oldest to youngest. That would have been the traditional style. But when we look at the genealogies now that follow from each of these three boys, Moses reversed the list. Instead of Shem, Ham, Japheth, we look at Japheth, Ham, Shem. That makes sense when you understand that Genesis is focused on the seed line. Remember? The line of the promise. 
And I'll remind you of this so many times you'll get tired of it, I hope, but uh, I want you to be very clear about the purpose of why Moses wrote Genesis. There was a creation, there was a fall, and then there was a promise from God to redeem men from that fall. The promise is first stated in the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. From that moment on, the whole story of Genesis is focused on the working out of that promise. Where God goes next in completing the promise he made in the garden. And since we know that the promise follows through only one line of human beings, then it stands to reason that the other lines are not germane to the story. They're not important to what Moses is ultimately trying to communicate. So in this case, of these three sons, we know already that the seed line, that's the term I'll use to refer to the line of people that carry the promise forward, the promise of a coming Messiah, the promise to deliver a Redeemer. The seed line in this case is Shem's. From the blessings we saw Noah give in chapter 9, he is the one who will carry the line of the seed. So Moses gets the other two brothers out of the way first. Covers them, just to deal with them, but then moves on. Now before we look at the genealogies, just take note of two important qualities in this chapter. This sets up, I think, the reason why we study genealogies. I know genealogies don't come to mind when we think about fascinating places in Scripture, but they can be fascinating if we give them the time. First thing to notice about this chapter is God is making deliberate, purposeful decisions concerning where his promise rests. For example, Noah has three sons, but only one of these three sons is going to give fulfillment to the promises of God, to the promise of being a redeemer. Not all three can give birth to the Messiah. Only one of them will have that privilege through their line. Therefore, Japheth and Ham are excluded from that honor of carrying the promise forward, only Shem's children has permitted this honor and blessing. So as you see, there is going to be a selection process as God says, I made a promise, I'm going to carry it forward until it is consummated in Christ, but only one line gets it, therefore from one father there must only be one son who carries it. On and on you're going to see this pattern continue until we reach Jesus. Both Matthew and Luke in their Gospels give us genealogies precisely so that we could trace the birth of Jesus back to Abraham or to Adam in the case of Luke and thereby through those genealogies find Jesus qualified to lay claim to the throne, to the claim of being the Messiah, the promised one. That's a part of how Jesus proved that he was the promised seed because he fits the, the seed line. He is in the line of those God has been working through. So the first thing we note is that these genealogies have meaning with regard to Christ and they are a function of, they are a reflection of God's purposeful choosing and assigning of who will carry the seed line all the way through. Secondly, chapter 10 is unparalleled, absolutely unparalleled among ancient texts in explaining the origins of all nations, all people groups, all mankind. There is simply no other document in antiquity that comes even close to explaining origins the way this chapter does. In fact, many later documents of antiquity, which try to explain the origins of nations, actually refer to Genesis 10 as their source. It is that authoritative. That's why we sometimes call chapter 10 the table of nations. This genealogy, by the way, is horizontal, not vertical. What do I mean by that? Well, chapter 5 was a genealogy chapter. It was vertical. Chapter 11 has some genealogy in it as well. It is also vertical. In both cases, they talk about who begat who begat who begat who begat who and how old they were when they they died. That moves us forward in time, kind of vertically from the top down. 
This is horizontal. We don't hear any ages here. We don't hear about who begat who, begat who, begat who. We just hear about a father and a son, father and a son. And the key focus in this chapter is going to be on where they spread geographically. So this is horizontal in that sense. It shows the movement outward of people, not the descendancy of people. I want to make one last point. There's a map. That map shows a lot of what we're about to study now in chapter 10, where the people end up on the map after they move outward from Mesopotamia. Now, when we go through this list of names, many of the names of Noah's grandsons can be directly traced to nations of people that still exist today. The entomology of the names, the words themselves, trace to modern language words that tell us where these people came from. So other names have lost their meaning. Some are doubtful and we're not sure, but there are many that are very certain, and that helps us see the validity of what's being presented here in chapter 10. So as we read through this list of names now, and forgiving me for my pronunciation, please, I want you to reflect a little on the world you see today, remembering that the people groups that now form the nations of our, of our world were settled by just a few families moving outward roughly 4,500 years ago. That's how long it's been, and that's what we now study. Chapter 10, verse 2. Let's read the first genealogy for Japheth. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Riphath, Togamah. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kedem, and Doranim. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. When Moses starts with Japheth, this is the son that will give rise to, in his family line, most of the people of the world and most of the wealth of the world comes out of the line of Japheth. All Europeans and Asians, and by extension North Americans, trace their lineage by and large to Japheth. He has seven sons in total. Most of them, were told, move either northeast or northwest from where they start in Mesopotamia. Now, as a general rule in Scripture, the farther a people group moves from Israel, the less important they are in the story of Genesis. So here you have Gomer, for example, as the first name, settling south of the Black Sea, current-day Russia. They became Sumerians in the history of the ancient world, and... They become a, a group of people that today we would consider Russian or Iranian in part. Magog settles in southern Russia, become the Scythians. These people who descend from Magog combine with the descendants of Meshech and Tubal, according to Ezekiel 38, and eventually prosecute a war against Israel that has yet to happen. And students of eschatology, you, this is ringing bells for you, I know. If you haven't heard of this before, this is the future war in which Russia and Iran, which would be the present-day descendants of these three groups, will invade Israel, we're told, in Ezekiel 38. That's never happened, so it's still future. The third son is Medei, who becomes later the Medes of the Mede-Persians. Later, they settle India from that same group. In fact, there's a tribe in India even to today that still talks and refers to an ancient ancestor, a father named Ayapeti in their language, one of the Indian dialects. But Ayapeti comes from Yepeth, and Yepeth is the Hebrew name for Japheth. So even in India today, they have ancient stories of their origins that tie right back to the name Japheth. 
The fourth son of Japheth was Javan, who was the father of Greece. Interestingly, by the way, Greek legends name that the father of Greeks was Iapetos, and Iapetos is the Greek form of Japheth, which is the Hebrew form of Japheth. The fifth son was Tubal, who settled parts of Russia. You get the Russian word Tobolsk, which is a place in Siberia today, from the word Tubal. The sixth son was Meshech, who was also, also moved to southern Russia. So there you have Meshech, Tubal, and Magog all living together, forming that group that Ezekiel talks about. Finally, you have his seventh son, Tyrus, who went to modern-day Italy. So there's Japheth. You also have Moses listing grandsons for two of those sons. And then he ends with the statement that from these, the coastlines were separated. It's an interesting statement. What he's saying is that the families of Japheth were largely the family groups that decided to settle along coastlands uh, throughout Asia Minor and eventually into Europe. And they became a seagoing people. Most of, a, of sea navigation as we know it today can be attributed to these sons of Japheth and how their sons and grandsons furthered movement around. That's also why they are so prevalent throughout the world. We have Japheth in Europe, Japheth in Asia, and then by extension to the other continents because Japheth started on coastlands, learned how to fish and how to navigate on water, and that eventually gave them an opportunity to move outward from where they started and settle other lands. Because Japheth's family, though, moves farther from Israel than any other of the family types, they are given minimal treatment in this order, and they show up virtually not at all in the text of Scripture hereafter. For the first time, I want you to notice in verse 5, we see land ownership. Now, it's not stated specifically, but it says in verse 5, they settled according to their language and according to their families, and it says separated into their lands, into their lands. Previously, from what we can gather, men didn't claim ownership of land, but they claimed use of land because they were all one family, one tribe. But in this culture now, people start to lose that sense of being part of the same tribe and the division now becomes more substantial, more permanent, and with that comes ownership of land. Finally, verse 5 confirms that the separation was as a result of their different languages, different cultures, different identities arrived out of different language. We'll study this in chapter 11 when we get there. Let's move on then to Ham, the second son. Verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, and Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Habilah, Sabta, Rahamah, Sabteca, and the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Iraq and Akkad and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth, Ir, and Kalal, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalal. That is the great city. Mizraim became the father of Ludim, and Anamin, and Leabim, and Naphtahim, and Pathrasim. Anybody have new kids here coming soon? These are some great options if you haven't got good names ready. Caslehim, from which came the Philistines, and Kaphtorim. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn. And Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girishite, and the Hevite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. And afterward, the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. 
The territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go toward Gerar and as far as Gaza as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah and Admah and Zeboim, as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham according to their fathers, according to their language and by their lands and by their nations. So Ham gets a substantially bigger treatment here than Japheth in keeping with the fact that he and his descendants settle much closer to Israel, and as a result, many of these nations have a more direct impact on Israel's future. Looking at it from the top down, he has four children initially, Ham does, but then he has numerous grandchildren. Ham himself, we're told, settles northern, what we consider today to be northern Africa, the Middle East, then later the rest of the African continent traces its origins to Ham. His first son, Cush, which has become synonymous with the name for Ethiopia, settles that region. The second son is Mizraim, and that is the Jewish name for Egypt. The third son is Put, which is Libya. So if you go into the Old Testament, and depending on how your English translation works with the Hebrew, you will often see in the Old Testament prophets discussions of Cush, Put, Mizraim, not speaking about people, though, but speaking about nations, These are where those names came from, obviously, and today we use different names for the same groups of people. But that shows you how much integrity Scripture has even now for where they actually landed. Finally, we have an extended discussion about the fourth son, Canaan. Now, we know, if you've studied any Bible, I guess, you'd know that Canaan is the name associated with the land that later becomes Israel, the land that Israel enters under Joshua. Canaan's descendants become the various ites, of the Old Testament. I had a pastor one time who loved to insert Menentites every time he would say that long list to see if anybody was actually listening. Interestingly here, Moses gives the borders of the land associated with the Canaanite peoples. Those names can still be tied to regions today. We still can go to a map using ancient literature and ancient text and find where those names correspond to in geography terms. That area that's being defined there corresponds near perfectly with the land that God gives Abraham in the promise that he makes to Abraham concerning Israel. In other words, Canaan's territory is the territory of Israel in the kingdom. It extends from modern-day Iraq, from the Euphrates, all the way to the Mediterranean, and from Damascus, virtually, all the way to the Brook of Egypt. We're talking about a land space that Israel has never to date actually owned, but they are promised to own it and will one day own it in the kingdom. And as we saw in chapter 9, when Moses tells us of how Noah woke and saw what had been done to him by his sons and he pronounced a curse, he didn't curse Ham, for his own son was saved, he can't be cursed, but he curses the grandson of Ham, Canaan. And here we see the outworking of that, that Canaan's lands were the lands designated to become Israel's lands, that Canaan would be disinherited. When the time came, God would choose to bring Israel in in place of the Canaanites, in keeping with the curse. Of all the grandsons of Ham, one of them gets an extended treatment here. A treatment that will continue on into chapter 11. Nimrod. Most of you probably have heard that name at some point, especially if you've studied Genesis, of course. Nimrod is born to Cush. His name in Hebrew means rebel. And that gives us the key to understanding him and why he's highlighted here, why there's a spotlight on him for a moment in this chapter. He is the mighty one, we're told, on earth. The mighty one among men and also a mighty hunter. That term begins to tell us a lot about this man and about his nature and about his character. 
The mightiness refers to his ability to command men. So you may fairly say, here we see the first aspiring world leader. When Noah and his family got off the boat, there was only them, and Noah was by default the leader and in charge. But this is a different kind of aspiration. This is someone who is trying to take it for themselves, to acquire something they don't naturally have. He does it here, apparently, as a conqueror. That's implied by his hunter title. Men have been given the right, we know from chapter 9, to eat meat now. And it's been at least a few decades, maybe even a few centuries, since that time has passed. And now we see a man named Nimrod raising the bar, developing the art of hunting and excelling at it. But when you see that phrase, before the Lord, a mighty hunter before the Lord, it changes the entire sense of what's being described. We're not talking here about Bubba, who's really good at hunting, and this is the guy you take when you want to go hunt so that you be sure to have a good afternoon. This is not the kind of sense we're talking about here. In fact, you notice Moses says this has become a proverbial saying, at least in Moses' day. We may have lost it, obviously, in our culture today. But when Moses wrote this, he said, just like the saying goes, that like Nimrod, a mighty hunter, before the Lord. Now we hear that and we think, how is that a proverbial saying? Well, it's hard to translate across cultures, obviously. Today we say, well, a bird in the hands were two in the bush, and somebody's aware of what we're trying to say because they've become accustomed to that colloquialism. This had that same effect in this culture. In ancient thinking, when I say I am before someone, like in the case here, before the Lord, it meant in opposition to them. That's the sense of what it meant. Being before them meant to be antagonistic, to be standing in defiance of them. And since we know Nimrod was a mighty hunter and was a mighty man on earth, we put all this together and we arrive at a very clear picture of what was going on with this guy. He was a man who commanded obedience among men. He used the threat of force, his, his knowledge of weaponry, of killing, to take control. Remember, in a culture in which hunting and eating meat was relatively new, Anyone who got a good understanding of how that worked would have an advantage over other people for a while because they could instill a fear about their ability to kill. And he was a man, we're told, who stood opposed to God before the Lord. And with others alongside him, they together would have stood against the Lord. So this phrase then, the colloquialism of this phrase, means an evil person who tries to provoke God by leading rebellion. You ever met somebody like that? The world's full of people like that. Going back to the ark for a minute, each of the eight on the ark were believers, right? But here you have a grandson of one of the eight leading a rebellion against the same God who saved his grandfather from the sin of the world. It doesn't take long then for the evil heart of men to take over and bring men back to rebellion, right? Well, think back to chapter 4. You have Adam and woman who have just sinned in the garden, but by grace... God didn't destroy them. He provided covering. He had to remove them from his presence, of course. But he made a promise to redeem, and he set them out the garden, set them outside the garden. One generation later, you've got Cain killing Abel. Similarly, you have Noah and the eight saved on the ark by grace. Noah, a blameless man, we're told. And one or two generations later, you've got Nimrod now leading the world, or leading who he can, in rebellion against God, opposed to God. Only 
The saving grace of God's mercy can rescue us from this never-ending cycle. If there was ever a place in Scripture I could take you to show you that people are not naturally good, here it is. Two generations removed from the flood, and they're opposed to the very God that saved them. Nimrod here then becomes a picture. Do you see the picture? It's a powerful one once you see it. A type, in other words, a model. He becomes a picture of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the ultimate world empire builder who stands opposed to God. Nimrod is like a mini-me version of that one here. Just a picture for a moment. Look at Nimrod's empire, for example, as given to us in that text I read. Verse 10. It stretches from Babel to Kalneh, and it's called the land of Shinar. The land of Shinar is Mesopotamia, modern-day Babylon. By the way, Babylon or Mesopotamia is also the place in which the enemy instigated the fall of the garden because the Garden of Eden was located in that that same place. This will also become, we're told in Revelation, the headquarters for the Antichrist ruling during the very last days. There is the east-west motif evident right here in front of us in in the pages of Scripture in the story of Nimrod. Scripture is filled with pictures or themes that reinforce the basic truths that the author is trying to communicate. And the themes or these motifs help us learn and they help us remember the message of Scripture. Here's one of those themes. This is a theme of East versus West. Now, we're not saying East and West are naturally good and bad. We're saying God has assigned them to these roles so that he can create a picture and then use it throughout Scripture. East is the direction associated with Satan with evil, with sin. West, on the other hand, is the direction in Scripture associated with God's promises and his faithful people. Furthermore, in keeping with this motif, Babylon is always associated with Satan. Babylon's in the east. That's his home field. If you wanted to go play ball on Satan's home field, you go to Mesopotamia, go to Babylon. Conversely, Israel and the promised land is west, that is God's home field. That's the place for him and his people. That's where he will rule from. So if you look on a map, within at least the, the, the microcosm of the Middle East, promised land west, Mesopotamia east. Now you've seen this pattern already if you've been noticing it. Remember back in the garden, Adam and Eve sin, they become evil in that respect. Where are they sent when they leave the garden? East. Abel and Cain, when Cain kills Abel and he's banished and and committed to wandering the earth without God's presence, where does he go? East. Later we're going to study Abraham, a man who's called from Ur of the Chaldeans and sent to the promised land. That's being called out of the east and sent to the west. Now you see here the rise of this evil, aspiring leader. How much of a world leader he is, we don't know, but he seems to capture a large component of the world. He claims his home in the east, in Satan's backyard in Mesopotamia. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know, Nimrod's adversaries saw him as a powerful man, a dangerous man, a man they might have feared, a man they may have had to be careful around. Or perhaps out of self-preservation, a man they had to align themselves with. But in reality, 
They weren't fighting that man. They were dealing with a force behind that man. They were dealing with Satan. That same force is still in the world around us today. The story of Genesis reinforces that truth because the work of men in the world around us is always set on a backdrop of what Satan is doing to undermine God in the world. We know that, or at least we should know that. If you study the Bible, you should appreciate that. But the world doesn't understand that. The unbelieving world are pawns for the work of an unseen enemy who works his will through them and they don't even know he's there. Just the events of the last week in in Norway, as tragic as that is, you can see if you study the story carefully, even with the little that's being reported so far, this is a man who is under demonic influence, I'm convinced, at least from afar. And his pattern, how many times have we seen this pattern, by the way? Lone guy, crazy guy, we think, loner, gets a bunch of guns, goes somewhere, shoots a bunch of people, half the time kills himself, and sometimes other times he doesn't. People think he was always weird, and he has these strange explanations, like the guy this week in the stories I've read says that it was a necessary thing, it had to be done, something in his head told him he had to do it. That's the enemy. I'm personally convinced this is a method, a, an M.O. Of the, of the enemy. There are demons who have exactly the same pattern. They move from host to host to host. And when they want to free themselves from the host most efficiently, they kill the body and they move on to the next host. I'm predicting right now, you're going to see what happened this week happen somewhere else again in the world pretty soon. It happens every three to five months. And if you go back and look in history over the last several years, it's been very predictable. And it always looks the same. It's the same demons, in my opinion. I don't know if I'm right, but it makes sense in light of Ephesians 6.12. It's the world we live in until Christ's return. I'm not trying to scare you. I hope that what we're doing out of Scripture is we're having our eyes open to the reality that we don't oppose people. We oppose the enemy. We need to see the people around us either as brothers and sisters in the Lord, if they are, or potential brothers and sisters in the Lord, if they're not yet, And in the meantime, be wise to understand that whatever they do in opposition to us and the message of Christ is at the behest of an unseen enemy behind the scenes, and they are pawns until they are freed from that association. We may be the instrument of freeing them, as God permits. We may be the target of their attacks, as God allows, but they're just an unwitting pawn in the hands of a greater enemy, and we, but for the grace of God, would have been in the same situation therein. So we come with a message of hope, with an attitude of forgiveness, and with a desire that God would use us for that purpose. And then as whatever transpires next is in God's hands. We war with an enemy, not with them. Finally, we reach the most important line and finish off here in the the last few minutes with Shem, the man who carries forward the seed promise. Look at verse 21 through the end of the chapter. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam and Ashur and Arkpashad and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hul and Gether and Mash. Arpashad became the father of Shelah and Shelah became the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan became the father of Almadad and Sheleth and Hazamaveth. And Jeral and Hadaram and Uzal and Dakala, Dakla, and Obal and Abimael and Sheba and Ophir and Havilah and Jobab. 
And all these were the sons of Joktan. Now their settlement extended from Misha as you go toward Sephar, the hill country of these. So Jobab's from the hill country. You all can remember that. These are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. So we sum this up relatively quickly. Shem's line begins with a distinction there. Shem is the father, we're told, of all the children of Eber. That's an interesting distinction, isn't it? Eber is, is actually one of his sons, and he's called the father of all his grandsons, basically, of the sons of Eber. Why? Well, Eber is the one through whom we get the name Hebrew. Hebrew is, is formed from Eber. So the Hebrews come from Eber. Here again, you see the purpose of Moses, right? This genealogy is interesting. It tells us about our history and so on. But its point is to show the carry-on of the promise of the line of the Messiah. And here it goes from Shem to Eber and into Eber's family. And that's the point. Shem has, for the record, five sons. The first one, Elam, is the one who settled in Persia, modern-day Iran. The second son, Ashur, founded Assyria. That's where we get the name from. Third son, Arkbashad, he became the father of the Chaldeans. Remember that? Ur of the Chaldeans. This is where Abraham eventually comes from. And that's how we know that Arkbashad is the one who carries the line of the seed. The fourth son was Lud. He lived in the region of Lydia, of Asia Minor. Lydia is mentioned in Acts. The fifth son, Aram, is the one who settled Syria. So we're saying here the Middle East. You notice that we're talking about Israel and the lands directly around Israel. Eber, we're told, has two sons. We won't spend much time here just to make a note, though. The first, Peleg, it means to divide in Hebrew, literally to divide. He was born, we're told, when the earth was divided. Now, some have speculated that that's a reference back to the moment in which, during the flood, that the continents split apart. And if you remember, if you were here when we studied the flood, you know that that's a part of what was going on as the earth was flooded. The continents were pulled apart from that one continent that existed in the beginning. But that puts it at the wrong timeline. Here we're talking about people born after the flood, obviously, so that can't be right. We're talking instead about the events of chapter 11, the dividing of humanity with language in chapter 11. So he was born during the time period when the Tower of Babel occurs and the land, the, the peoples of the land are divided. He is the son of Eber who carries the seed. Peleg's brother was Joktan who founded the Arabian tribes. You notice Joktan has all his sons listed, and many of the others don't. That's because there's 13 grandsons who form the 13 tribes of the Arabian Peninsula. And then at the very end of the list, if you add up all the names, all the families, do you know what number you get to? 70. Coincidence? If you've been in this room long enough, you know, no such thing. God has appointed 70 families out of the line of Noah. You don't get a more simple, clear illustration of God's sovereignty in the affairs of human families and and man in general than that fact alone. That's a simple one, but it's so clear. God ensured 70 families out of Noah. 70 in Scripture is the number associated with God ruling through the representation of men. You see other examples, 70 elders in Israel, 70... Jewish men who translated the Hebrew into Greek when they made the Septuagint. When it shows up, it's like a big sign screaming to us, God did this. It wasn't chance. wasn't coincidence. God purposely ensured only 70 families and did so so that when we read about it, we would sit back and say, God's in control. 
He's not just in control of big things. He's in control of even when people got together, married, and had kids, how many they had. And he's still doing that today. He's in control. In keeping with what Paul himself testifies to in Acts 17, verses 24 through 27, Paul, when he recounts how God has brought men to where they are today, he says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. God is at work here dispensing, we've used that term here in the past, dispensing grace by ruling over men's sinful hearts. Next week in chapter 11, God will disperse, we'll see the story of how he actually disperses them, how this actually came about as a result of the Tower of Babel. And in that story, we're going to learn more specifically a lesson on how Nimrod and his rebellion is challenged by God in dealing with men's sin, how God confronts that challenge and how his grace wins out in the end. Look at verse 32 to end the day. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies by their nations and out of these nations were separated on earth after the flood. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that we had the patience this morning, Father, to give our full attention to your word. When the world is beckoning us to other things, to other thoughts, You beckon us, Father, to put aside the world and to sit at your feet in the way that Mary and Martha had different choices for how to spend their time when Jesus entered their home. We, Father, have a different attitude than the world when we enter your home here as you occupy it with your spirit. Thank you, Father, that we give our attention. But more than just listening to the word, Father, I pray that you would call us in our hearts to be doers of the word. And though there may have been many things preached out of my mouth this morning, Father, I pray that what was preached into the hearts of those who heard through the Spirit would be so certain and specific that each of us, Father, would know it is you at work and your voice and not the voice of a man. And that what we may have each heard as we've listened to your word would be something, Father, that would call us to a greater obedience, something, Father, that you could use to your glory. Let Oak Hill Bible Church, Father, have that reputation, a church of members who know you, and who live what we learn, and who call others, Father, to the same. I pray, Lord, you would use us mightily in that way. Send us out from here into the picnic and through the rest of our week as ambassadors of Christ, leading before us, Father, and turning hearts to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.